Today, I'm going to tell you the story of a rich white man and the black man unjustly accused of causing his death. It's a case that could have happened yesterday, but it didn't. It happened 135 years ago. It's a story of money and murder, corruption, and a criminal justice system sorely lacking in justice. This is the story of the killing of John Sharpless. Whether it's history, crime, or legend, Stephanie Hoover has that story. John Sharpless was born near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1824. He was a respected man, committed to his Quaker faith, and thanks greatly to inheritance, quite wealthy. In 1856, John married Quakerist Susan Pratt. In 1859, the couple had a son, Martin, who died just 21 days after his fourth birthday. Perhaps to offset this loss, John invited Susan's sister, Jane, to join the household. Samuel Johnson was born in 1849 in a poorhouse in Wilmington, Delaware. Because she was black, his mother was forced to serve three years in servitude to the state for the privilege of birthing her son in this institution. By age 20, Samuel was known as a petty thief. At age 30, he moved to the town of Chester in Delaware County, the home of the Sharpless family. At five feet nine inches, Samuel was taller than most men in the 19th century, but he was slim, only 152 pounds. He occasionally drank too much and changed jobs regularly. He was illiterate and, as we would likely describe him today, intellectually challenged. He often stole food to survive, but he was never a violent man. At 8.30 on Sunday evening, November 22, 1885, the thermometer in the town of Chester registered 42 degrees. What drove the townspeople inside to their warm fires was not the chill, but rather the heavy rain and howling winds that came with it. It was the kind of weather felt in the bones. On this evening, John Sharpless sat by a lamp reading. Susan was writing letters while her cousin Lydia Reynolds conversed with Susan's sister Jane. The last thing any of them expected to hear was the sound of someone knocking. John, as was his habit, opened the door without hesitation. A man stood some distance from the threshold. What does thee want? John asked. The ladies could hear the exchange, but not the exact words. After several moments, Jane went to see who had come to the home on such an inclement night. John told her the visitor was asking for assistance with a carriage that had broken down on the road. Do you know this man? Jane asked. No, John replied. While John gathered his hat, coat, lantern, and umbrella, Jane went to the door to see the caller for herself. It bothered her that she couldn't quite make out his face. She asked John if he was white or black, to which John replied, he's a white man. Jane begged John not to leave, but rather to give this stranger supplies kept in the house, but John insisted on taking the man to the barn to find tools for the repair. 
After 30 minutes had passed, Susan grew agitated. So Jane donned her coat and waterproof overshoes and walked down the long, dark lane leading to the road. Finding no sign of a carriage or her brother-in-law, she returned to the barn. She found John's umbrella just outside the barn door. Inside the door, she found the lifeless body of her sister's husband. John Sharpless was likely struck on the back of the head the moment he stepped inside the barn, and the blow was devastating. It cracked the Quaker's skull into several pieces. John fell forward after the strike, landing with his feet just inside the door and his head near a horse stall. John's hat, which lay near him, was covered in blood. Word of John's death stunned and outraged the people of Delaware County. An estimated 1,200 of them came to his home to shuffle past his plain coffin. Eight persons eulogized John Sharpless before pallbearers lifted his casket into the waiting horse-drawn hearse, which took it to the cemetery. Susan and Jane offered a description of the man who came to their home. Five feet, ten inches tall, maybe 160 pounds, he had an oddly smooth face, almost as if wearing a mask. He was either a black man or a white man made up to look like one. He had prominent teeth and an unusual manner of speaking. He wore dark clothes, a soft hat, and a white handkerchief tied around his neck. The police chief distributed this information to his men and ordered a search, but they weren't the only ones looking. The desire to solve the crime was further fueled by a combined $1,000 reward offered by the Sharpless family and the county commissioners. This was more than twice the average man's salary. At the time, police officers were as eligible as the general public to collect rewards for the capture of criminals, a conflict of interest apparently lost on the courts of the day. But this potential profitability was not lost on Philadelphia policemen David Roche and Thomas Alexander, who boasted the most suspect and prolific arrest records the Philadelphia Police Department had ever seen. Nearly 50 black men were usually without cause, detained, and declared to be John Sharpless's killer. Several were paraded before the widow Sharpless, but she identified none of them as the man who'd come to her front door. By early December, the reward had reached a staggering $3,000. Several days later, the team of Roche and Alexander confidently announced that they had arrested the real murderer of John Sharpless. His name, they said, was Samuel Johnson. Johnson had been released from the Philadelphia County Prison just two days before the Sharpless slaying. He was serving an eight-month sentence there for stealing chickens. The developmentally disabled Johnson was forced to serve as his own advocate during his arraignment. Not surprisingly, the magistrate ruled that he would be held for trial. Johnson would wait in the Delaware County Jail from December 1885 to March 1886 when the Quarter Sessions Court held its next hearings. When his trial finally began, he was dressed in a new suit supplied by his lawyers. He'd gained a little weight thanks to the regular meals provided by the warden and sported a newly grown beard and mustache. Several days into the proceedings, word spread that the widow Sharpless would testify. 
The soft sound of her light, shuffling footsteps felt deafening to the waiting audience. She was pale. Her gait was excruciatingly slow. It seemed to take forever for her to reach the witness box where the court clerk waited. As a Quaker, Susan would not take the oath sworn by other witnesses. Instead, she pledged an affirmation to tell the truth. District Attorney Jesse M. Baker led Susan through every excruciating detail of the night of her husband's murder. Samuel Johnson sat just feet away as she testified, yet never once did Susan indicate that he was the man responsible for her husband's death. In what he surely viewed as his damning final question, Baker asked the widow, Can you identify this defendant as the man who was in your house that night? The judge, like everyone else, leaned closer to hear her response. I think I am not able to do that, Susan quietly responded. You might assume that this is where the case ended, but it did not. In fact, after 16 hours of deliberation, the jury found Samuel Johnson guilty of murder in the first degree. His punishment? Death by hanging. The months following this verdict were the cruelest times of all. An execution date would be set, a flurry of legal actions would be filed, and the hanging would be postponed. This happened four times in all. Each time Samuel prepared for the finality of the noose, only to learn that he would have to suffer from this anticipation all over again. In March 1888, it looked like the real end had finally arrived. Samuel listened as carpenters constructed the gallows just outside his prison cell. In desperation, his lawyers tried one final tactic. They wrote to Pennsylvania's Board of Pardons, begging for Johnson's life. But now, it was Mother Nature's turn to torture Samuel Johnson. A massive spring blizzard buried the East Coast. Railways were blocked, mail delivery was suspended, and telegraph wires were down. How would they receive the pardon board's response? Just hours before Johnson would meet the hangman, word finally reached Delaware County. Newly elected Governor James Beaver had signed Samuel's reprieve. The noose would have to wait. By now, Samuel's story was receiving national attention. What little support existed for his original conviction had mostly faded, Still, the nagging question remained, if Samuel Johnson didn't kill John Sharpless, who did? Most people believed the true murderer was a man named William T. Caldwell. At one time, Caldwell owned a barbershop in Delaware County. In fact, he shared a building with John Sharpless's attorney. This birthed the logical theory that Caldwell knew the influential Quaker and his financial worth. Additionally, Caldwell's wife worked at Swarthmore College, just a mile and a half from the Sharpless homestead. Most damning, though, Caldwell's appearance and manner of speech matched the description provided by the widow Sharpless. His front teeth protruded. He wore a black coat, slouch hat, and a white handkerchief tied around his neck. While in jail on another charge, Caldwell was visited by a reporter who described the man as speaking as though he wore ill-fitting dentures. 
During the interview, Caldwell complained that people bore a grudge against him and that some had even accused him of being Sharpless's murderer. Surprising, since the reporter hadn't even asked about that case. Yet, for some strange reason, Caldwell was never presented to Susan Sharpless for possible identification. By April 1889, Samuel Johnson's supporters numbered in the thousands, many of whom signed petitions demanding his release. Advocates included notable businessmen, powerful politicians, and nearly the entirety of the Quaker community, including John Sharpless's own family members. Unsurprisingly, among Philadelphia's large African-American population, Samuel Johnson's name was used as a rallying cry. The outrage over his unjust imprisonment helped to oust the seemingly invincible Richard Vaux, the openly racist representative of the 3rd District. But even with all of the public infamy the case received and the legitimate questions raised about Johnson's guilt, the Board of Pardons refused to set him free. On June 22, 1889, Samuel Johnson was transferred from county jail to the notorious Eastern State Penitentiary. He was housed in solitary confinement and never during his entire incarceration had a cellmate. On New Year's morning in 1900, Johnson called a cheery hello to the prison keeper who passed breakfast into his cell. A short while later, keeper James Corkin returned with the usual holiday treat of a Dutch cake, a simple Pennsylvania-German pound cake, along with a cup of coffee. About 10.30 a.m., Corkin passed Johnson's cell once more and observed him sitting on his bed, elbow on the table, forehead resting in his hand. It was a pose the prisoner assumed often, so Corkin initially thought nothing of it. After passing by the cell several more times to see Johnson in this same position, however, Corkin became concerned. He called Johnson's name. There was no response. He called again, and then a third time, but the prisoner neither moved nor responded. Keeper Corkin unlocked the cell and hurried inside. He gently shook Johnson, but it was obvious he would not awaken. Samuel Johnson was dead. He had served 10 years, 6 months, and 9 days for a crime that no one, not even the victim's widow, believed he had committed. In one last undeserved indignity, no family members could be found who would claim or bury the body. His remains were therefore donated to the anatomical board. Samuel Johnson, who had never had the opportunity to contribute much in life, in the end gave the greatest gift of all, a chance to further the scientific study of the human body. For that, he will always be honored. Susan Sharpless lived to the esteemed age of 92. Until her final breath, she declared Samuel Johnson to be innocent of her husband's murder. Susan's estate was distributed to her family, her friends, and the church. In her will was a particularly interesting bequest involving a shaving glass, a simple item that Susan undoubtedly gently touched each day before placing it back exactly where John Sharpless had last left it. And each time she did, I can only imagine that she prayed against all reason, 
that her beloved husband might return home to use it. That's my story about John Sharpless and Samuel Johnson, a murdered white man and an innocent black man, neither of whom deserved the complete absence of justice they received. While it certainly can't change the past, perhaps this tale will urge those of us alive today to recognize that we are all so much more than our skin color, our net worth, or our level of education. Today's episode has been excerpted from my book, The Killing of John Sharpless, The Pursuit of Justice in Delaware County. If you'd like to learn more about it, please visit my website, stephaniehoover.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or whatever platform you prefer. I'd love to know you're listening. This is Stephanie signing off and reminding you that, yes, it's a crazy world out there, but every single one of us has the power to make it better. Until next time, be well, be happy, and most importantly, be kind.